Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. With the recent shootings in New York and Texas, a script as Americans we know all too well, I thought about Meredith Hall's book, Beneficence. The book was published during the pandemic in October 2020 and released in the paperback edition in September 2021. A few months later, November 30th, I was in conversation with Meredith in a book talk at the Portsmouth, New Hampshire Athenaeum. It was held on Zoom, and you can watch it through the Portsmouth Athenaeum YouTube channel. The novel came to mind because at its essence, it is a book about the cycle of life. The death of a child by a gun, grief, a family's relationship to home, and how love eventually brings everyone back together. This episode of the Short Fuse podcast is a somewhat edited audio of that program around Meredith's book that critics have described as luminous. Let's begin with the title, Beneficence. Robert McFarlane is a British author who writes about landscape and nature, and he published a book called Landmarks. It's a book that looks at the power of language to shape our sense of space. One year, he noticed a culling of words from the Oxford Junior Dictionary. Here are some of the words that were left out. Acorn, ash, cowslip, dandelion, fern, heather, ivy, replaced by attachment, block graph, blog, broadband, MP3 player, bullet point, and voicemail. Beneficent, such a beautiful word, and it appears four times in the book. And I was wondering, Meredith, if you could read us the sections where it appears. I would love to do that. When working with my wonderful editor, Josh Bodwell at Godine Publishing, he was the first to vote for Beneficence as the title of this book. And it startled me a little bit because I was not aware of the connection between Beneficence and what I had written. He really was felt strongly that this was an appropriate title. And it was only when I moved through the manuscript to work on copy edits that I came across the word Beneficence in my in my prose, and I was shocked. And then a while later, I came across it again, and I did a word search, of course, and found that I did use the word beneficence four times in this book. And it clearly said to me that this book is about beneficence, that it is, Josh was right on it, that this this is, that my sense of beneficence is at the core of this story. Mm-hmm. So I would love to read some of these passages The story is told in three voices in a cycle. Uh, Dora speaks first, the mother, and then the daughter, Dodie, who is early in the book, as young as 10 years old, and then Tuck, the husband. And they each have their turn to speak as we move through time, through 
the years of that span of the story. So this is Dodi speaking. Yesterday morning, the second cut of hay gleamed in the early light, the green stretching across our land, across and beyond the creek and the orchard, across the road on the other side to the ledges. That shining grass speaks of more work coming for Dad and Beston, the cutting and raking and tedding and baling and hauling to the barn and hoisting to the lofts, the timing critical before frost takes the grass. But that is not my work. And while I stood at the kitchen sink looking out on our land, I felt for the first time in a very long time the simple and perfect beauty of our land, its beneficence, and I said yes to Beston. So beautiful. The love that this family feels for this place. You mentioned, Elizabeth, that Tup's family has been on this land for five generations. And Tup's father actually wanted him to leave this land and uh, get an education and be free of this farming, which his father did not find satisfying. That doesn't happen. His father dies and Tup quits college marries Doris and brings her home to this family farm that was at the time, it had uh, really declined. And Top and Doris brought it back to a thriving dairy farm. That work, it's, it's a beautiful place anyway. The land is very beautiful and very bountiful. And the place itself is bound up in the work that this family does on that land. And they really are inseparable. The family knows that. The family is very aware that home is work and that work is remunerated, that work is paid back by this very gentle and generous land. This is Doris speaking, the mother. Top charged Dodie to find God. Once I knew that God, I was thankful. Every day I was thankful. I was loved. Top loved me. We created three children. We lived on this farm. The center farm bound us. Beneficence, benediction, benefaction, benevolence, beauty, beatific, the beatitudes. What's happening for Doris at this point is that in her sorrow after this event has hit this family, she slips into cycles of language repetition in her struggles. This list of all the the Bene words, the B-E-N-E words, is actually a moment where that cycling through language is a cycling through everything that has ever given her peace and comfort. I looked up the Beatitudes and reread them and thought about them and, and realized that blessed are the poor and in spirit and, and the meek and Blessed are the peacemakers. Did you go back and, and look at these things? And- yes, I did. From my childhood experience in a, an Episcopalian church, the Beatitudes would come up periodically, and they always interested me, this idea that if a person follows these good rules, these rules of goodness, then there will be reward. Doris certainly lived in that world before this crisis hit her. She understood that world and lived that world. She really lived that goodness. Um, They would have been very important to her. This is a family that went to church as virtually all rural Maine people did during this time. Church was a social place for them. And it was, I think, for the most part, 
an unquestioned kind of tethering to certain rules of goodness. I think that God was, for the most part, reassuring and they could turn to God and trust that God would keep them safe and bless the farm that they were on. This is a moment when the family, because of this tragedy, is starting to question their faith in those basic sort of almost community church lessons. These were not dogmatic or ideological teachings of some of a, of a larger church. These were just community church lessons. And uh, she's telling us here that Tuck feels it's imperative as they try to make their way through this difficulty that they hold on to the gifts that that basic faith brought to them, even as the others in the family find their faith deeply shaken. There's another, a third place where I mention beneficence. I'm going to read a paragraph before it to give it some context. This is Top speaking, the father. We are quite far along in the book. This happens near the end of the book as the family is making its way back to each other after this, a real sundering. There's a real a real shaking apart of this family after this event. Top is able to start expressing the move that each of them slowly and tentatively is making back to the family, to the members of the family, to the marriage, the parents making their way back to the parenting that they have not done a very good job of during this terrible time of grief, and also a return to an expression of love for this land. So this is top speaking. There's been a great winter storm. The storms offered a threshold, an opening. The dark and wild beauty of the storms pressing at us for days held promise, and I believe we were hungry, finally, to be grateful. As we quietly set about our chores to prepare for the blizzards, we recognized the time, recognized the grace of the wind and the dark and the snow and the radiant quietude that followed. Each dawn, we gathered at the shed door and took measure of the snow and its enfolding of the land. All this beauty, Dodie said, and I said, we are blessed with the gift of loving this beauty. God gives us beauty and then the gift of loving beauty. We turned back to breakfast, to the plenty offered to us by this land, and then we pulled on thick, warm clothes and made our way into the wind to tend our patient and generous animals, the cold in our lungs and against our muffled faces hard and wondrous. The dark storms roared across our land, the fields and the pastures and the orchard and the hill with its enduring stones under the old pines. Later, joined again by the fire, by the beneficence, our voices rose and the familiar stories extended and the remembering was wide and thankful. And then, to my amazement, I used the word beneficence one more time in this story. <laughs> <laughs> near the very end. And this is again top speaking, and it's very close. He tells the end of this story in the cycle of Doris, then Dodie, then top speaking. Top is our last speaker, and he is really closing the story for us. This is near the very end. We will ourselves to live this day grateful and unguarded. We decide, we make ourselves ready to participate in beneficence and goodness. 
There is no peace outside that. This book was published in March 2020. Resident Meredith came out actually in October of that. It was supposed to come out in March and the pandemic pushed it off. It was during the pandemic. Yes. When you read a prescience about the the centers, and of course the the family is named Center with an S, but it seems such a perfect name to keep this, this family together. There's no peace outside of this of this place where they are, but they have found within themselves daily this 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 peace. And the, the peace of the land and the requirements of the land are enough to be a force that drew them back to each other and to the land when when that was very much at risk. We've spoken, Elizabeth, all of us know grief and sorrow and loss. Every human being knows sorrow and loss. And many people know true tragedy and trauma from that loss. And yet, I believe that we are intended, we're we're built to seek beneficence and to express beneficence. And I think my writing of this book was a way to express that faith in us. I think that we, I think we each own this and, and have a need to express beneficence. And this is a family that struggles and wobbles and fails as many of us do. They fail and then they find their way back to them. The farm is home. And James Baldwin described home, he said, simply as an irrevocable condition, which I just think is is such a wonderful way to describe home. There's one place where Tup, the father, writes, all the generations that have lived in this house, all the words said that should never have been uttered, all the laughter, the births and the deaths. As I was reading this, I also thought of Donald Hall. Donald Hall, the poet, and of course went back to his farm in New Hampshire and had the tragedy of his wife dying. And I got out his poetry to reread it as I was preparing for this. And one of his poems, uh, Maple Syrup, he said, I, I remember coming to the farm in March in Sugaring Town as a small boy. And the cycle here is a small boy in March. We're going through the cycles of nature. This idea of home, that it isn't, it isn't necessarily a construction, it's a sense of being. Yes, it is. I really believe that this home, this sense that these people have about home, is all details. It isn't something grand or large. It's not, it's not an idea. It's not an obligation. It's not something that has been passed down through the family as a kind of a calling to the land. Home for these people is simply the details of every day and the details of the people who have lived in this house every day, just daily lives in this this building that is home and the barn and the land and the creek and the, the fences, the lights and the lamps in the barn. Each of these details is what, what defines home for these people. And I think it is that for us. I think that there is, if we think about a place that has felt to be home for us, what we think is not the larger 
understanding of this place on the planet, what we remember is the small cup that always lived in a certain place on the shelf in the kitchen. And it's very much that way for these people. Top's, Top's generation, Top and Doris and their three children, live in a house that is furnished with furniture that has been there forever. And <laughs> they refresh it and they they come <clears throat> to feel that it's their furniture, that the chair and the lamp and the little sewing table that Doris uses beside her chair. These are their bindings that hold them through memory to this place. So, and it's, it is the details. I think it's, it is not something larger. It's just the daily details that do that. There's another um, quote that I've written down from the book, that the farm is a bulwark. I taught my children, this world and then the world outside, we are safe on this land, in this home. Once gained, we can never turn from knowledge and its burdens, but we can find order here and the freedom to love fiercely all we know. I think I'm expressing there my own longing for that sense of a home that was, a, I speak in another place about this home being a stronghold, that this is, this is safety, this is protection. I think that this mother and father, they live, the farm is out at the end of a dirt road and the road goes on to nothing. It goes into the fields of a neighboring farm, but there are no neighbors beyond them. There are no neighbors close to them. They live in a very remote area in the mid coast area of Maine, inland from the coast itself. They do have interactions with people in town. They go to church and they go to the market. Occasionally they go to the feed store. The children go to school, they go get on a bus and go to school, but the centers see themselves as people beyond that kind of world of commerce, what brings people together in a center. And it is for them a place of great safety. They have come to trust that if they are home, if they are on that land and in that home, they will be safe. The father at one point leaves the farm. Not really, but in some ways he isn't there. And the mother is living there, but she's now within herself. And she can't really make room, make room for others. And yeah. yet they're still there. I think that Doris and Top are deeply in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And when this tragedy hits their family, that reassurance just evaporates for them. And they struggle. Doris, there is an old main expression. If somebody faces terrible difficulty, people will say he or she went into herself or into himself. And Doris goes into herself. She experiences a very deep grief. And it is all she copes with is that grief. And eventually, Top feels that there is, that she cannot accommodate him in any way she can't she's unaware of him holding him really holding him at a distance and so he finds his own ways of coping Doris goes into herself Top finds his ways of coping with all of it but in the end there are three these three children this family that has been so disrupted love is just threaded throughout it's this deep love Top proclaims at one point that love is joy that if we are bound by love, we are assured of grace. 
this is one of the great mysteries for me in my life. And uh, it has surprised me how much of my own thinking and wondering made its way into this book. And that is one of my great, it's a, a deep gratitude and a, a source of great wonder for me. Why were we given beauty? Why, why is there beauty? There doesn't, this, this world, if this is about Darwinism and, and natural selection, all of that could happen without beauty. Why the beauty? And then why are we built to love and feel such gratitude and such joy for that beauty? And I think that I let Top speak some of that for me in this book. And then love is sensual. I could hear her laughing, and then she came out of the water dripping and pulled me by the hand, teasing Luminous when they were early on in their relationship. Tuck and Doris are very much in love with each other. And even to the end of this book, they are they not only love each other and need each other and believe in each other. And you write into the story so often that afternoon must still be held in these walls. Stories don't go away. I've learned that. Whatever happens is with us forever. What has ever happened in this house and in this room is with us forever. The other life endures in these walls, all of it. We are a family. We love each other deeply. We will return to ourselves. We hold to that longing. This is a storytelling family. Is these narrators, we have these three narrators but each of them is a storyteller. So one of the functions they serve is to give us a past. They often tell us things that happened before we meet them. Now, of course, as you said, there's a tragedy and there's deep suffering and pain and grief. There's lightning seared the land. The rain beat against my, my face, my chest, my groin. Thunder shuddered through me and my cries were heard. Love is not enough to help any of us now. And yet, as you've said, we've talked about this, it's part of life. And so we, we don't see this as a dark book, <laughs> as you've said, but as part of the cycle of life. For me, the core of this book is not, the story is not embedded in that tragic event. The tragic event is the structure of the story. Meredith, I must ask you now, as a writer, your memoir was on the, on the New York Times bestseller list, and, but this is your first novel. How did you create these? How did they come to you? Well, I will have to tell you that this was a, a mysterious process for me. It was an extraordinarily joyful process for me and also an extraordinarily sorrowful process for me. <laughs> I, I do know these people. I don't know how. I, when I, after I wrote my memoir, I was very uneasy about how much, because of the success of my memoir, I was out in the world with it a lot. I spoke to large audiences about this book. With memoir, people ask about the events of the life, not about the writing. And after a couple of years of, of that kind of uh, exposure, and I loved those conversations. They were very important conversations. I had a large experience when I was a teenager 
I felt that this was especially important to talk about, but I finally got to the point where I didn't want to talk about my life anymore. And I thought fiction was the perfect way out of that. So I created a family that had nothing to do with me. People I've never met. I've never known anybody who lived on a dairy farm, certainly not in 1947 or 1955. I didn't know Doris. I didn't know Tup. I didn't know these three children. I had no idea what life on a dairy farm would be like for them. And I actually didn't have a lot of personal knowledge about a very well-integrated family, a family that, that understood we love each other and we can rely on that. I did not have that knowledge. So their presence here is a mystery to me. Fiction writing is an extraordinary act. These people came to me ready-made. They came named. When I was ready to sit down and write this book, each of these people had a name. They had an essential personality. They had an essential role with each other and in this story. I didn't know exactly. I knew that this was going to be about a family that started in one place and then experienced this tragedy. And then my question was, then what happens? Where where do they go after that? I knew that much, but that was all I knew. So I don't have a good answer for you, Elizabeth. I think that I experienced, oddly, the grace of feeling in turn that I was a member of this family. I felt that I was inside this family and came to feel, I, I feel very homesick for them now that this book is done and closed. I have a deep, deep feeling of longing to be in that home and in that barn and on that land with these people that I love so much. I experienced their grief in a deeply personal way. It was a very, very difficult time for me. I didn't understand why. I, I often during those months of writing those difficult times, uh, scolded myself and say, just write a different book. It's easy. These people don't need to suffer like this. Just change the story. And I couldn't do that. This was the story. It was already the story and I needed to tell it. Although it had not come to me from any place outside. It was just a story that I needed to tell. I couldn't have named it. I couldn't have defined it, but it clearly was the story I needed to tell. You must have spent a lot of time alone. I just had a conversation with Helene Flowers, and Helene was incarcerated, um, called a super predator when he was 16 years old and spent 22 years in, in prison. And I asked him about being some of the time in solitary or, or what was it like? And he said, Elizabeth, I was never, said I was always in my imagination. I would create an idea for something and he said, sometimes I'd have a board and I'd have Toni Morrison and James Baldwin on the board. I mean, you know, he said, I wrote, I would write stories. I made up stories. I, I wasn't, it didn't bother me being in, in, a, in a cell, in a cage because I lived and lived these things. It must be when you could create the story the way you have and describe these characters, when you were really with them, Meredith, then it would be hard to be watching the news and doing something else. Yes, I, I, you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. I think that you cannot be both in the world and writing this kind of material. It's, um, it is, writing is, as you know already, writing is an isolating act. Although I taught graduate students 
taught writing to graduate students for many years. And I was always amused that their favorite place to write often was a coffee shop. And I, <laughs> I, I did really have no understanding of how people pull this off. But um, for me, it's a very lonely and, and solitary time anyway. And this book was, I didn't understand what was happening. I think that was the thing. I did not understand how fully my own way of seeing the world was being written into this book. I There was no feeling of what I imagined that I would have this kind of distance and I would make characters and I would give them things to do and that I did not have that kind of control at all. I was absolutely inside this place. I think that it's a place where you really cannot be in relationship outside that world uh, very well. Meredith, I went back and looked at Charlotte's Web. I know that Joyce Maynard, when she interviewed, you mentioned the book as well, but I thought Donald Hall, E.B. White, even Wind in the Willows. Well, I am honored at the comparison. And, <laughs> and you know, E.B. White, he told his story in detail. It's just mm-hmm. details, details, just small events, small events. And, and I recognized the second I was onto this, that this was my story. I I had it. This was it. Mm -hmm. But what I thought I had was the story of a man, Top, who was the father, and something awful was going to happen. I didn't know exactly Mm -hmm. what. And he was going to misbehave. He was going to be a man who was selfish, who took care of his own needs. He had been a pretty good father, pretty good husband. But when this thing happens, all he knows is to fall back on trying to rescue himself. And I wanted to watch the decisions he made, but mostly how he explained those selfish decisions to himself. So that's where I started this book. I opened there. I thought I was going to open right there. And in fact, Doris, his wife, in the book she talked first and I I had not expected that I hadn't even I hadn't even made decisions about who would tell this book I thought I was going to tell the story I didn't know that these characters would and here was Doris speaking to me and within a few pages I understood very clearly how deeply she loved and respected and liked her husband and it became very clear to me that whatever I had imagined about this man was not going to be true and I needed to rethink the story. Once I got that far, mm-hmm. um, I was able to put this, this book together over probably a couple of years. Getting to that point was several years. It was a very frustrating process for me. I was a child of the 50s, out of high school in the late 60s. And yet there was something about my family that was very 1940s and my community. It was something we were out of time in some way. And so a lot of this was just very familiar to me. These were women working in their kitchens and working in their gardens and keeping their chickens. And there was nothing mysterious at all to me. I I knew these people. They were very familiar to me. I did not know the details of a dairy farm, although I grew up keeping sheep. I was familiar with sheep and You know, living in that kind of uh, small New Hampshire town and in Maine, once I came to Maine, farming is is around you and you you just know the rhythms and the people. So there was an oddly known quality about this for me. There were many things that I needed to research, but it was not difficult research. I needed to know 
I knew how to dock lamb tails. Is that how you dock a cow's tail? And when do you do it? How old are they? How old are car calves when they're separated from their mothers? New difficulties in birthing for a I imagined it was the same for a cow, checked on it, and I was right. I, I could write that. So there was actually not a lot that was outside my, I think, a kind of imagined world for me. I think it was deeply imagined from the time I was very young. This was a world I longed for. If I could have named my ideal life, it would be the center farm. I write in really pretty extreme isolation. So when my book was done and I sent it to my agent, nobody had seen this book. It's a very risky way to write a book because you don't know anything. When sending it off, this was true with my memoir too, sending it off to my agent with no feedback at all about whether it was viable was a very moment of tremendous anxiety really waiting on the edge of my chair. Will she like it? So I I don't know how to explain that. I don't know why I have such a profound sense of privacy about my writing. I think that if I entertained responses from readers, it would confuse me. Mm. I wouldn't know what to do with that. And I, I refer to it as writing by committee. I do at the moment of writing, I, I, you know, writers talk about this. I'm in a different zone. I am not here at the computer making, making decisions. I really enter a different zone. I listen to Gregorian chants while I write. I think that those chants, they are something completely outside me. I don't know what they're saying. I have no idea what they're about. They're beautiful. They don't require anything of me, but I've been listening to the same several-hour loop of Gregorian chants for years now. The same ones have accompanied my writing all these years. And I do think that that influences that place that I find that I disappear to while I write. I did not, with either of those books, trust that I had a book that would go beyond Uh, my agent saying no. I did not have that trust, but I did have trust. When I write, I trust my act of writing. I do have confidence. When I sit at the page, I mean, I'm in charge. I'm king of that page. You know, it's, it's mine. Whether that's good or bad, whether it will work or not, is a secondary question for me. It's just been so wonderful being in conversation with you, Meredith. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.